You are now listening to The Big Trade with Peter Pham, enlightening conversations for maximum market returns. Frank Curgio, it's been almost a year, and you're back on The Big Trade series. Um, you are the first ever repeat guest to appear um, that was not a consecutive show. So you're making history. Uh, you were the lead off. You were the opening act, and you're the closing act. Can you believe it's almost been a year? I know. It's been a long time since we did. Too long. Too long. So, uh, no, it's great to talk to you. And even though, you know, we'll send emails back and forth, but actually podcasts and stuff like that, it's definitely been too long. But It's been absolutely incredible, like, to spend some time doing all of this um, and ha- having you as one of, like, the first guests really establish a lot of credibility to the Big Trade series. And then after, we went on to speak to so many other interesting people, like, Econ, um, like Nobel Prize winners, ambassadors, um, you know, economists, hedge fund managers. So it's been a really interesting use of my time, at least during my evening times in Asia, because I'm talking to all of you guys in basically, like, say, the East Coast during your mornings and um, early afternoons. Yeah, no, and it is great too. And as you, as you, I mean, I've been doing podcasts for ten years, and it's amazing because it's a way to really reach the entire world. I mean, here we are doing it, in, you know, uh, Europe, overseas, uh, America, and it's just—it's amazing how many people you actually reach. And plus, you learn so much from the guests that you interview. So it, it's really addicting. I'm glad you're still sticking with it because it's really a lot of fun. How, how do you go from one years to ten years, though, Frank? That's a big. That's a big. It's it's. You know what? I really love what I do because, you know, and it's a free podcast. People say, well, you know, you give so much stuff away for free. And I think, you know, you can attest to this, Peter, where it's not necessarily where, you know, we're getting so much in return where, uh, you know, you've built a network of, you know, 50, 60, 70,000 people that listen to this, maybe on a, you know, on a weekly basis. And all these people, a lot of them are usually experts in their field or they're knowledgeable about a particular sector. Even kids in high school know more about Instagram than any analysts will on, on Wall Street. And when you have this massive network and these emails coming in and you're interviewing experts like you, you, know, like you just mentioned, you'll learn so much and build relationships with these people. And you can call them at any time if you need help in any industry. So you know, while it looks like we're doing a free podcast and we're doing all the work, we certainly benefit to, to the point we're getting real-time knowledge from, from so many people, and, and it's kind of addicting. So uh, you'll see, because we'll be doing this another 10 years from now. You're going to be like, you know, you just you can't stop once you start because it's a lot of fun, and, and uh, you, know, you build up some really great contacts. I'm a big believer in what I call like business karma, which is basically the actions that you do um, in the business world today – will have dramatic implications for you within six months' time. And I have seen, as, as you indicated, just it's, it's been um, relatively life-altering. I don't get the opportunity in Asia to speak to this many or this diversity of people in the West especially and to be able to obtain these ideas. Like I just spent some time speaking to a guy um, well, I told you he was the ambassador from the United States to Canada. He was a best friend or very close friend of Obama's, and he gave us inside look an inside look on the TPP 
and like what was involved in terms of putting together an agreement like that, explaining to any like conspiracy theorists that would say, why is something like that not as public? And actually talking to us about like a lot of the benefits involved. He was actually involved in the NAFTA agreement as well. And I, I don't think you'd ever really get into a conversation like that with anyone. No, I, I agree. I actually did an interview and I was uh, learning so much about uh, genetic companies and DNA sequencing. So I decided, just like you, you, know, you want to learn more about the industry and you want to try to get one of the best guys on. I interviewed a gentleman named Owen uh, Ashley and he analyzed the first human genome. He has direct ties to the president. He runs the whole Stanford medical department, basically. A brilliant guy, nice guy. And after I interviewed him, I said to myself, uh, I realize how dumb I am sometimes. <laughs> you interview people like this, and yeah. people say, like, you know, so much about so many sectors, but there's so many brilliant people out there in certain fields. I couldn't believe he agreed to come on the podcast. He turned out to be a fantastic guest, a great guy. And, you know, you'll learn a ton. Now he's a contact. And, and think about that. You know, you want to learn about life sciences and stuff like that. You could talk to this guy, uh, broadcast it. And for me, someone who writes newsletters, yeah, you put that interview in and you're talking to an expert, the number one guy in the entire field. It just adds credibility to everything that you're doing. Uh, and again, you know, like you said, you, you just you learn about industries, you learn more about people, more about politics. Uh, and, and in the end, uh, you know, it benefits us tremendously. Uh, and, and don't forget, like, I think you were the one who introduced me over to Rick Rule. And any minute that you can get to hear some of his insights is incredible like uh, I, I did the podcast I know people that are repeat listeners of that very episode we talked about everything we talked about like um, um, value investing and, and Benjamin Graham Warren Buffett and all, all these um, thoughts and insights and he, the way that he articulates his uh, concepts and ideas is is truly fascinating and phenomenal yeah, Rick, Rick Rule is basically, uh, for those who don't know, he's been uh, financing, studying, and investing in, in the resource market for over 40 years. Uh, he works at Sprott Asset Management. These are guys that I visited along with Eric Sprott a few weeks ago. Uh, look, if you're going to invest in resource companies, the reason why I'm talking to him is because we know resources is a cyclical industry. Right. And it's been horrible for four years. And when this industry turns, you're not looking at 50, 100% gains. These stocks have a tendency to go up 500,000, 2,000%. It's common in this industry. So for me, a guy like Rick Rule, who's been there for 40 years, when I could ask him, hey, is this company real? What do you know about this? And he's like, here's the management team. This guy didn't do a good job. Or these guys are great. And to have those contacts in the end benefits you know, my subscribers and people I'm writing to. And, and again, he. I mean, to have a guy like that on, and plus he's very good, he's entertaining, you know, sometimes you'll get guys who are a little bit dry, and it's our job, you know, as hosts to kind of, you know, spice up the interview a little bit and keep it going, but Rick, you can just let him go, and he's very entertaining, and now that he's brilliant, and probably the smartest guy in the entire resource sector, hands down. Hmm. And one more guest we'll talk about is, um, because obviously I'm in Asia, I, I, I went over actually to Jim Rogers's, um I guess his, his, his mansion in um, Singapore spent almost like half a day with him um, just watching like his world, you know, like he literally has a globe. I got a picture with him on a, like a massive globe and just talking about like Asia in general. And he seems almost to be like an ambassador of Singapore. It, it was really fun just to talk to him and hang out with him almost for a day as well. 
I know I have a funny story about Jim Rogers too. I think this is about two years ago, maybe three years ago. I interviewed him several times on my podcast. Right. And now, you know, it's known, it's written everywhere that he exercises at least twice a day. And he was doing his exercise routine while I was interviewing him. So I don't know if he was on a bike or a treadmill. So he starts this massive cough fit. And, you know, he tries to get over it during the interview. And again, my, my interviews, you know, you would usually tape them. And then if we need to edit them, you know, then, then we'll publish them. So it wasn't live. Right. So he's coughing. So we, we stopped. And I, and I remember saying to him, I said, Jim, look, I said, don't get me wrong. I said, if you happen to pass out, you die. I'll have the most famous podcast in history, but maybe you should take a break a little bit. Take five minutes, control yourself. And he's like, no. And he started laughing. It was, it was fantastic. But he actually was coughing so much he couldn't talk. I was like, hope this guy doesn't die. Uh, and he was fantastic. He, he was very, it was funny and uh, I made him laugh. It was really cool. So he's, again, a great guest. And the fact that you're in Asia able to go there i mean how many people could say that where yeah. Yeah, i went to his house i went to his mansion and spoke to him and then you're bringing that live in your podcast you bring information to, to people that they can't get any place else especially from watching on tv and that's why these podcasts are so great yeah so it, it, it's it's nice talking to you to get all this um get a little retrospective we've, we've done quite a few episodes already over the the last year and we're still going strong um, I, I guess rather than talking about some other guests, let's let's hear about you and what's been going on with you and how do you see the markets these days? I, you know, you're looking at the markets these days and I think a lot of people are still not in the market, especially retirees. I think they got scared out of the market, especially from the credit crisis, you know, and, and you can't blame them, right? I mean, you're looking at people who lost, you know, 30, 40% of their portfolios during the credit crisis 2008, 2009. They saw their home value go down. These are 65, 70-year-old, 80-year-old people who don't have working power, thought they were set for life, and now they really don't trust the market. So, uh, you know, when I look at the markets today, there's a lot of fear. You're seeing a lot of volatility. I've never seen so many stocks in a market that's kind of close to its all-time highs, and you've seen a lot of names down 50 60%. So I think for the first time in maybe 10 years, or maybe since the credit crisis, you could actually say it's a stock picker's market where in 2010, 2011, you could close your eyes, pick any large cap stock, you'd probably be up today. Uh, but, but right now, there's a lot of separation. Some companies are doing great things compared to others. Others are seeing a slowdown, having trouble growing sales. So I'm having a, a great time as a stock analyst finding the great ideas for people in stocks that may be down 30, 40, 50% due to overreactions, maybe because of earnings. But I have to tell you, I'm seeing more ideas today than, than I've seen in the past few years, and it's opened up a lot of opportunities for investors right now. Can we uh, dive into some of those ideas? Uh, last time we talked about some really interesting uh, stuff, and I knew that the audience really enjoyed that. So what do you, what's on your radar right now? Uh, I, did, I mean, large cap, we'll go to large caps. I, I really like GE still, like GE. I was a company, I was well ahead of this story when it was uh, 24, 25. I knew exactly what they were going to do. They were selling off their GE capital unit. Uh, I knew they were going to generate tens of billions of dollars and said they were going to return this to investors. And then, you know, I was able to write up my newsletter and then they, you know, GE was saying they were going to do this all the time, but nobody really paid attention because it's GE, right? I mean, you know, last 10 years, been a boring company. You have negative returns, not including dividends for the past 10 years, you know, before this recent run-up in the stock. But GE is transforming itself into a really cool company. I mean, it's, it's a technology company now. They're not worried about GE Capital, which, yeah, Frank Dodd, tons of regulations. They sold off this entire business. Or they're going to sell off. They sold off, I believe, about 50, 60% of it. And 
all the money that they're generating, they're giving back to investors in, in forms of dividends and buybacks. You got a nice yield there. You're talking about $100 billion they're giving back, if you want to put that in perspective. And that's just over the next four years. $100 billion is about the, the, the market cap of McDonald's. So that's what they're returning to investors. Uh, now they're focused on a trend called the industrial internet where yeah, they used to sell a jet engine to, to Boeing and say, okay, we'll see you in 10, 15 years. Now they're putting sensors all over the, everything that they sell, all over the industrial products that they build, and they're tracking this stuff, and they're making machines smarter and making them more efficient, and it's leading to trillions of dollars in cost savings throughout the entire industry. And GE is the main player. So you have an income stock with a growth model, and I know, you know for 10 years it's been a horrible company, but right now for long-term, for people looking for long-term growth and income, I think GE's a fantastic company here. What What about, um, I've, I've heard criticism about GE from the perspective, I haven't had a chance to really analyze in depth the, its, its financials and its balance sheet, but I've heard and I've seen headlines about GE utilizing debt to stimulate um, some kind of like artificial demand for its equity through the share buyback programs. Is, is this a scenario similar to that of like IBM where I, I don't know the magnitude of this industrial internet and how big that is relative to the proportions of GE's revenues, but um, is, is this an overall theme that GE is experiencing as it continues to sell off some of its uh, subsidiaries? Well, GE is in a different position than IBM and McDonald's, where McDonald's actually said they're going to tap the, the debt markets because they, you know, they need to buy back their stock. Right. Right. So, so McDonald's is seeing zero sales growth. Right. Over the last three years, not expected to grow sales over the next two years, but you're seeing the stock go higher miraculously. I have no idea why. But if you're looking at a company like McDonald's that does this, you're looking at companies like IBM. But when it comes to GE, it's not necessarily they're borrowing, but they're able to sell off all these assets. So the cash coming in, which doesn't include the debt, that they're able to return back to investors. So it's a little different. On the positive end, we all know eventually interest rates are going to go higher, and we're seeing the greatest companies, even with the best balance sheets. Look at that Microsoft taking out a few billion dollars, bonds extending for, what, 40, 50 years, uh, earning a, a great rate. I mean, it was oversubscribed to these things. It's amazing how they're tapping the debt markets for interest rates so low, which makes sense because eventually, you know, maybe they need the money, maybe they don't, but they know that they can borrow money here at a certain rate and they can make a lot more. So why not borrow? You, know, you don't want to say, why don't you borrow as much as you can to the point where, you know, you're sitting, you know, at $100 billion in debt for, for a company like Microsoft, but, uh, which is not even the case. But you, they're using it and they're tapping it a little bit to, to invest in, in other things where they want to buy other companies where they see the rate of return much higher than borrowing at 3 4% you know, over a 10-year period. Yeah, it makes sense for, for some of these companies, uh, especially in the technology, that need to, to purchase other companies and having trouble growing organically. Uh, so, so it's a good way of funding, especially with low interest rates, but there's a lot of manipulation, financial manipulation going on. You have to be careful. GE is not in that, in that category, though. Okay. And, and any other interesting themes that are on your radar at the moment? Uh, Facebook. Okay. I mean, I think Facebook is going to be the first trillion-dollar company. I've been saying this probably for a year now. Uh, I think Facebook, you know, I've been researching companies for more than 20 years. It's the most amazing company I've ever researched in my life. You're looking at, at, at a company that, yeah, I mean, 1.5 billion people are on Facebook, which includes Instagram, they have WhatsApp, 
uh, people don't understand the growth behind Facebook. Uh, if you're looking at, at advertising, right? Say if Comcast, uh, you want to advertise on Comcast. Say uh, UP, you want to, you know, advertise on, Com- uh, on Comcast. You know, with your podcast, they're going to give you all kinds of demographics when you should come on. Uh, you know, this age group, you know, watches TV during this time, whatever. And then you go to Facebook, and, and before you even say anything. Yeah, they could be like, here, here's, you know, uh, 700,000, 800,000 people, or maybe 5 million people that, that uh, download financial podcasts and talk about it on their site. If you're Starbucks, you could, they, they'll give you stats where there's 5 million people in your Starbucks stores right now that just checked in. So you have a platform of, you know, one, 20% of the world's population on one site that spends at least 20 minutes a day checking this. You have nonstop new content, right? That's not even provided by Facebook. It's provided by the users. So people, you know, content is key. There's brand new content. People are downloading pictures, having comments on it. So when you look at Facebook and you see the valuation, you'll see 17 times sales, 7 times book, 34 times earnings, and you say, wow, this is overvalued. You know, overvalued. It's crazy for buying it. And for me as a value guy, I'm going to tell you something uh, that I probably wouldn't say for any other stock is ignore those multiples. Because if you're looking at companies like Apple, Netflix, Celgene, in 2004, these companies were trading between a 60 and 180 PE in 2004, and their 10-year returns are enormous. I mean, Apple went up 700%, Netflix up 5,000%, Celgene up almost 2,000%. Why? Because in that 10-year period, they were able to grow sales enormously. So you're looking at Apple growing sales 700%, Netflix 1,000%, Celgene 500%. So these are companies that are able to grow their sales. Now, let's transfer that back to Facebook because Facebook is an advertising market, right? So you're looking at a $600 billion industry right now. Mm-hmm. So they've generated what over the past, I want to say $14 billion over the past 12 months. So if they capture just a small portion of this, maybe 15% of that market, that's $80 billion in revenue. You're looking at 500% sales growth for Facebook. Now, and I'm just saying 15%, and how can they capture that? Because they have the best platform for advertising. If you're, you want to advertise, you want to get results, you go to Facebook because they have all the information, all these people give their information, they tell you exactly where they are, what they're doing, what they like, and nobody can really compete with that. So I think in terms of revenue, they could easily grow that tremendously, and I think that's really not factored into the stock even now that it broke the $100 level on the upside. What about the privacy concerns and issues? Because I do know, as you indicated, that Facebook does sell a lot of its um, information that it aggregates about user behavior and demographics. As an investor, it's it's not a concern. If you're an investor, if, if you're if it's you and I, and we're like, wow, we don't like privacy issues, then maybe people should stop posting everything about their lives, where they are, checking in, how many kids they have, what school, high school. Maybe you should stop going on. If you're really concerned about privacy, delete your Facebook account. But clearly, people are not doing that. So as an investor, listen, it's a hot topic. It's nice to mention. It's nice to talk about. It's not going to impact valuation because people just love this company. They need to stay on this company for 20 minutes a day at least. And that's great for advertisers, and you're not. And the way they monetize this platform, which is something Twitter has not been able to do, uh, you're not seeing advertisers in your face when you're on Facebook. And not only that, they're targeting what you like to buy. So I get ads, you know, for you know, I like to play golf. I get ads for for 
you know, specials on Pro V1s. We all shop for certain things. It's nice to get coupons. You know, if advertising was like this, you know, we, we wouldn't care. But when you're sitting there watching TV and watching these, you know, horrible commercials the whole time, it's no wonder why everybody DVRs everything and fast forward through them. But when you're really buying stuff and all the stuff you're buying, you're able to get coupons and discounts to a lot of this stuff. Uh, that's where Facebook comes in, and you kind of like the advertising because they're targeting you, and you know you're going to be interested in what they're selling. Hmm. So what about um, some of the acquisitions that Mark Zuckerberg has made over the last several years? Like, okay, it, I still don't know if um, Instagram makes a lot of sense. I understand that the community that they've aggregated, but has this reflected in, in revenues? And I'm, I'm definitely a user of um, the, the messaging platform, WhatsApp as well, but I don't see no ads there. I don't know what they're doing with that information. And I don't know if they're really able to monetize that. You, you know what? I'm going to give him the benefit of the doubt because I remember when he first bought Instagram. What did he pay for Instagram? Was it $2 million? And, and yeah, I remember the analysts on TV saying, you know, this guy should not be running a company. He has no idea what he's doing. And he bought Instagram for $2 billion and the valuation is worth $35 billion today. So, you know, you're looking at a platform where why did he buy it? Because, you know, it caters to the younger generation. So now you don't have to worry about people coming off Facebook. Uh, and, and a lot of people use Instagram instead. So WhatsApp, the fact that they have you know nearly a billion users, uh, you know the number better than me. They'll find a way to monetize it. They have the business model in place. It's just a matter of time. You're looking at a company with a 300 billion dollar valuation. It paid what 20, 22 billion for WhatsApp. Uh, you thought it was expensive, but what they did with uh, with Instagram and look at Oculus Rift. I mean, they bought Oculus Rift, right? Yeah, and I mean, this is going to be – this technology is going to be amazing. I'm attending a consumer electronics show in, in January. Uh, they're going to begin selling this stuff. If you get a chance, anyone listen to this, put in any company and type augmented reality. Yeah. Augmented reality is a combination of virtual, uh, which is computerized, and, and the real world. So you could actually – like when a Super Bowl is on, you could put these glasses on and you're sitting in a certain row watching a live game. And anyone with these glasses you could interact with. Uh, you know, when people are coming, you know, you have glasses could determine like who these people are. And they'll bring up everything and show you their whole entire profile but before you even talk to people. I mean go and look at some of the videos of what's going on. It's a game changer. This is going to be – uh, a new world of technology that I think a lot of people haven't really been talking about yet, but you're going to see a lot of it starting January, February, because that's when Oculus Rift is going to sell their first glasses, and they're really going to take pre-orders in January at the Consumer Electronics Show. It's going to be the biggest theme. You're going to see it everywhere, and you should try to pre prepare yourself for, for that trend. You can buy it through Facebook, which is a small part of Facebook because it's such a big company, but there's other companies like Cypress Semi. Uh, I think it's also... Uh, <laughs> Nuance Communications, too, which reported a good quarter. A lot of these companies have had parts within uh, the, these headsets. So you can get the nuts and bolts plays, but start focusing on that trend because I feel like right now it is like 10 years ago with cloud computing where nobody really understood cloud computing. You were like cloud, and you looked up in the air and said, well, you're getting storage virtual. I, I just don't understand it. And yeah, by the time everybody understood it, the stock, most stocks in that, in that sector in cloud were up 1,000%. I feel like we're in the same area in augmented reality. I'm not sure about anything that you put in front of your eyes, though, Frank. Like, as you've seen, there was a big craze for a long period of time about going to see um, 3D movies. And that's sort of um, kind of like tapered off a little bit. And we've seen um, that Google had to also 
uh, cans. They remember they were selling their Google glasses. Where, Google glass. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I think that's been uh, cut off uh, their their um, beta production, and they they've basically just scrapped that project as well. So I I don't know about the concept. I've been fiddling with augmented reality for the last several years, but obviously I haven't got a chance to use the Oculus Rift yet. But um, I I don't know because you know that's all about angles too, and you know when people watch some of those um, movies in 3D or anything anyone puts in front of their eyes, they're just going to say, well, I get a headache of this and I kind of get annoyed by this. And those glasses don't look so um, small and compact, if you know what I mean. They look pretty big. So I'm not, I'm not sure about that. Yeah, I know. And all great questions, right? Because this is what I said when I was going in. I was part of that 3D trend where I recommended IMAX. Yeah. And the reason why I recommended IMAX and it was at $3 is because I read a Wired article and it's, it showed how all the major action directors were filming in 3D. Now, yeah, it made sense. One, the action directors were going to do it, so you know, they're able to charge more for tickets, so it benefits the studios, benefits the movie theaters, and people were actually paying for it, right. and people go to see 3D movies even today. So it, it benefited everybody, but I knew 3D would never make it in terms of you know having it on your television where you're going to have 10 people come over watch a football game and throw on glasses. Right. So I, I hear your point, but... For me, and I attended the Consumer Electronics Show last year, I sampled this technology. Right. It was the greatest technology I ever sampled in my life. So they basically put you in a room, in a dark room, they put these glasses on, and you have to put yourself in this environment where if you're playing a video game, you don't know a video game, you look to the right, you have a wall, they look to the left, you have a window. I mean, every place that you look, they have different segments where I was standing on a building and I had the girl actually take me through my phone and video and it looked like I was going to fall off and I'm backing up and when I looked at it, I'm actually moving. There's like missiles coming at you and when they miss you, you could turn around you see them hit cars behind you. It was the most fascinating thing, again, because I was asking a million questions about this as well. Right. When I researched the technology, when I tried, I did not get dizzy. It was unbelievable. Uh, they had surround sound to the point where you put these little things in your ears. The sound was incredible. You had dinosaurs chasing you. Right. By far, the, you know, there's over 100,000 people that attended Consumer Electronics Show. By f- anyone that did that was, was talking about it for weeks. Uh, it was right. unbelievable. So for someone that sampled this and had the same questions, when I walked out, I said, they got it right. You're not dizzy. The glasses weren't bulky. Uh, it's more of a gaming platform with virtual reality. But when it comes to augmented reality, it's more just like regular glasses that you're putting on your face. So again, go explore this on Google and take a look at it. But from someone who's sampled this technology, I even got invited to Facebook to test out the Oculus Rift, which I'm going to, to there next month. It was one of the most amazing things I ever sampled in my life. And that's what put me onto this trend, which I think is going to be very, very huge. But great questions, questions that I asked as well before I sampled the technology. I think that would set a new precedence, though, Frank, is that like I'm thinking back at I'm very much watching the video game space. So I'm thinking back all the way to the 1990s when they had a product by Nintendo called uh, the Virtual Boy which was also kind of like um, a form of entertainment where you could wear these uh, glasses that would allow you to kind of see like the, um, it was an LED screen actually, and it would uh, provide what was like, I think, uh, two colors of 3D graphics, which also bombed, only selling like 700,070 units. Um, so I, whenever I think about those glasses, but uh, you know, I'm going to be as open-minded to this as possible, but it would be extremely interesting to see that succeed. Cause and again, it, yeah. 
you you look at the history of virtual reality. I mean, it started in 1965. Yeah. The 70s and 80s, huge failure. Late 90s, computerized digital glasses first came out. 2009, you had Time Magazine announce virtual reality, one of the 50 best inventions. What happened? Nothing virtual, right? Right. 2013, Google Glass. You're like, why didn't that work? Because they didn't really have a platform. They didn't know what they wanted. They put it in beta. They weren't working with companies. When I went to the Consumer Electronics Show, there was about 50 companies that were set, had this technology, even guys that were on treadmills, not necessarily treadmills that where you're going, you know, you're just walking on it, but it's almost like a, a circle treadmill where you can walk and turn and twist around. They're putting these glasses on, and you, they have like you know a toy shotgun, and the guy's like shooting. When you see him, he's turning around on this treadmill, running after people, you know, and it's stationary because he's on a treadmill and he's shooting things. And when you're looking at him, he's shooting nothing. And then they have the TV screens, and you see him running after people and shooting. You know, it's like a, sh- a first-person game. Uh, you know, you look at Lowe's, what Lowe's did with these augmented reality glasses is you could put them on and you're actually in the store, you're sampling, you can take anything off the shelves, there's tons of people there that could help you, uh, and then you could actually put these things in your cart, check out, and you could either get them sent to you online or go to the store, but you know, why is that different than just going online and buying them? Because you're sampling, you could see these products, you could hold them in your hand when you're wearing these glasses, you could actually talk to someone uh, a customer service representative in the virtual world, uh, it's fascinating. But if you look at, at you know, where is technology going for me, the game changer is you look at Steven Spielberg sitting on the board of an augmented reality company. You look at directors like Guillermo del Toro, great action director. You look at most of these guys are all producing content in virtual reality and, and augmented reality. So you're getting so many industries, so many companies to investing heavily into this. Comcast just announced that they're, doing, they're going to get into virtual reality. I think this is the early signs, and that's something to me that's convincing because you're seeing the best people in the best industries uh, and the leading companies getting into this and putting money into it. That's what makes me think that this time is going to be different. Could I be wrong? Absolutely. But for me right now, what I research and what I sample and going to Consumer Electronics Show and seeing so many companies implementing this technology, I think this time they're going to get it right. Frank, have you heard of the Sony PlayStation uh, VR headset as well? That actually then has a pre-existing uh, pipeline of content that's supported with it as well. Uh, what's what's going to be the, um, I guess the the content provider for the Oculus Rift? Like, what does it connect to exactly? Well, Oculus Rift is working with also Samsung. And Samsung has a line of glasses out already as well. Yeah, they do. But they're going they, – basically, it's just – they're providing the hardware and everybody else is going to provide the services. Okay. Now, the reason why I think that this is going to be so big is because if you're looking at it, one is Facebook actually owns Oculus, right? Okay. So you're looking at 1.5 billion people that you could actually sell these glasses to. Now, these glasses used to cost thousands of dollars. They're going to cost around $300, $350. They're going to have pre-orders at the Consumer Electronics Show, probably in the millions of people that are going to try this out. But even if you get a small percentage of the people who are actually buying this product and they do it through Facebook, it's going to be huge. But what, you know, getting back to your question is you know, they're providing the glasses, which was amazing to me, and you're seeing everybody else market the product. It's kind of like Apple because Apple doesn't even present at the Consumer Electronics Show yet. I'd say more than 40% of the companies, which is 3,000 to 3,500 companies that, that present all the new gadgets and everything at the Consumer Electronics Show, talk about Apple, how they're implementing, whether it's cases, whether it's new technology. So Apple's created this, this massive pipeline where they're not even at the show and everyone else is marketing them. 
I think that's what Zuckerberg's looking to do here with, with Oculus, where, you know, here's the glasses, here's what you need to do. And all these companies are already working with Oculus. And a positive for me is that these things are ready to come out, the first generation. Uh, you know, you couldn't really buy them. But I think Facebook wanted to sign so many people, show, you know, how this technology works and sign so many different partnerships with so many other people out there and, and other companies that now they're finally ready to launch it to where they're not just launching a product and worry about the content later. There's a ton of companies working with Oculus right now that's ready to launch this stuff. Yeah, and the technology is faster. It's easy to create apps, and you can create apps overnight for this technology. So it's a much different environment today in terms of cost, in terms of the technology. is much faster. You're not getting dizzy. These glasses are not bulky compared to other times when they launched this. So this is something that I'm pretty excited about. Okay, Frank, that's that's excellent. Let's let's uh, finish off this podcast by, um, and we did it last time as well. And I, I think you were kind of caught off guard on it. Was basically what what kind of um, Investing insight because you you've been doing uh, the analysis of equities and companies for for so long, right? And I'm sure there must be some interesting things or tidbits that one could use to to analyze some of these equities. W- what would you suggest for people using like you know a particular tool, or maybe it's that you read Investor Business Daily all the time, or something like that 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 you found always to be a very resourceful source or tool for you to help you analyze and find some interesting opportunities. Yeah, for me, I live and breathe stocks. You know, I grew up. My dad, my late dad, was, was a was a money manager and also wrote his own newsletter for thirty years. So I grew up in this business, and I think. For me, what's always important is getting out there, especially with today's technology. You can go on the internet, you can meet people, you call people, they come on your podcast. I think it's important to, to really talk to the main people in a lot of these industries. Uh, I think that's one of the advantages that I have. It's going to be an advantage that you have that helps with the research process. Uh, when it comes to a specific formula, look, there's not one formula that works. If it did, everybody would use it. Uh, so, you know, people would always argue, well, my methodology is the best, whatever. For me, it's all about really digging in, doing the homework. If a stock comes down 30% after a quarter, you know, analyze why. I mean, was it something that's temporary, you know, a contract that's going to hit, you know, over the next two quarters? You know, that's a good buying opportunity. If it comes down 30%, are the insiders buying? That's a great buy signal right there. Where if stock comes down 30% and the insiders aren't buying over the next few months, you know, it, I guess it's cheap for them. Why should I be buying it? Mm-hmm. Uh, you, you want to look at companies even on the conservative side. I think investors make this mistake of just looking at a yield and, and say, wow, this company pays 3 4%. I'm going to buy it. Where, you know, that's not how you make money in, in, in income stocks. Where, you know, you didn't buy McDonald's and people were like, I bought McDonald's for 3% dividend, you know, 20 years ago. The reason why you made a fortune on McDonald's, on all these, you know, on Microsoft. Is because they had a growth model. Is the capital gains, of, you know, and also those that dividend and income growth. So, you know, that's one of the reasons why I like GE so much. One of the reasons why I like AT and T so much because finally, after years, AT and T just took over Directv. They have a growth model now. So not only the stock paying a four or five percent yield, you have a growth model finally for this company where you know the company couldn't really grow that much. You look at GE, a growth model, industrial internet. So not only are you getting income, you're getting the you know. Uh, the possibility of huge growth potential. So, you know, that's one of the things I would suggest for conservative investors. Don't just look at the yield because a company can pay a 5% yield. If it goes down 20%, it's kind of meaningless, right? So, you know, you want to look at the company, the underlying fundamentals, and then use the yield as saying, hey, you know what? I'm getting 3% to actually, you know, own this company where I know the industrial intent is going to be a monster trend. It could take two years, five years, 10 years. 
but at least he's going to pay me more than 3% to wait. And you know that's the way I would look at investing. So little tidbits there. There's no simple formula, but make sure you analyze the news before you know. You know, I mean, one thing really quick here is you know, find a list of stocks or every day you can go on different websites. Are the stocks that got killed the most, and just look the reasons why they got killed. Put them on your watch list because a lot of times, especially in this market, uh, you know, those pullbacks have been great buying opportunities. You just got to figure out why these stocks are going down and make sure it's not a long-term trend. Is it, you know, low traffic and stuff like that, which is bad. But if they can turn these companies around, you can see really, really quick gains, especially in today's volatile market. That's excellent, Frank. So uh, for those that are listening, me and Frank are actually going to spend a lot of time with each other for today. He's going to be on my podcast. I'm going to do your podcast in a bit. We're going to talk about, um, I'm supposed to tell you about some things I'd like to cover with you soon. So uh, mm-hmm. one thing that we did last time when I was on your podcast, if you remember, was that I told you that technical analysis was archaic. And we had a pretty um, long or short conversation that was pretty powerful. And um, I hope to continue that conversation with you um, on your podcast as well. And that'll be great. We're doing that a little later, and I'm publishing my podcast tomorrow. But yeah, this is fantastic stuff. And Peter, I'm so glad that, that you stuck with the podcast. I think you're great doing it, and uh, really awesome stuff because I know that your listeners, your followers are really going to like it. It gives your perspective instead of just reading somebody and reading a paper. You actually see the personality, you see the work that you do when you go into Jim Rogers' house. Uh, you know, fantastic stuff. So I'm glad uh, the podcast is working out for you. Thanks, Frank. Uh, looking forward to talking to you in a bit. Sounds great. We hope you enjoyed this mastermind session. If you'd like to contact Peter Pham or Phoenix Capital, please email info at phx-cap.com.